Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. I'm Jeremy Moore. I'm pastor of discipleship here at Southridge. And uh, I was thinking recently about letter writing. It's kind of a lost art. Um, If you're over a certain age right here, you probably actually took pen to paper quite often. If you were maybe like, let's say, dating someone and it was long distance, you actually take an actual pen and an actual piece of paper and an actual envelope, you know, and you'd write a letter. Um, It would be in your handwriting and there was something kind of concrete and personal and intentional about it. I was thinking about when I was in college and I was dating my wife long distance um, during some of the breaks and uh, summers, and I would often write letters. If, if that um, was taking place today, I think probably maybe it would have been sending texts, uh, maybe sending emails, maybe FaceTime, things like that. And it made me think, wow, that's, that's a, there's something personal and intentional about a letter. Um, so we're actually in a message series in Revelation called Trial and Triumph. And it's, it's on this season, we're looking at the first five chapters of Revelation, but the last number of weeks, we've kind of been zeroing in on chapters two and three, which is this special little section, and it's letters. It's actually these really intense, intentional and personal letters from Jesus. It's letters from Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, these were an actual seven churches, Uh, As Nathan has been kind of unpacking for us over the last number of weeks, these seven churches are representative of all of the churches in Asia Minor, which are estimated to be about maybe 20 churches. Um, So these churches were, these uh, letters rather, were actually um, given by Jesus. They were revealed by Jesus to John, the author of Revelation. John kind of crafted them in writing and included them here in the introduction to Revelation. And they were, they were delivered and read aloud to the seven churches and then various churches, at least 20 different churches around the ancient world. So each of these letters is um, kind of has a different flavor. Uh, one of the letters is entirely warning. Uh, two of the letters are entirely encouragement. And then the other four of the seven letters are a mix of warning and encouragement. Uh, This morning, we arrive at the letter, Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira. That was kind of one of the cities of the seven. Um, These seven cities actually formed a trade route in the ancient world. So it would have been a very sort of expedient way with Roman roads to kind of get John's message to these churches and have it read aloud and sort of almost be like a center of distribution for this message. And so we arrived this morning at the letter to Thyatira, Thyatira. A couple of unique things about the letter. It's actually one of those that's a mix of both warning and encouragement. So you kind of hear, hear both when you hear the letter read in just a moment. It's the longest of the letters. So we are going to fly this morning. I mean, it's the longest of the letters. So there's just a lot there. And then over and over, you'll read when you kind of read people commenting on it that this is the most complex of the letters. This is sort of the hardest one to interpret. So thank you, Nathan, for giving me this one. It's the hardest one to interpret. Um, This morning, uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 2, uh, verses 18 to 28, where you'll find the letter to Thyatira. 
And we have Leah, who's here with us. Um, Leah's going to read it aloud as you read it silently to yourself. You can read it in your Bible if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have one on your phone, like a Bible app or whatever. In front of you, there's actually Bibles in the rack, so the chair's in front of you. It's on page 1915 in that Bible, if you want to use that one. So Leah's going to read it. Leah is a, uh, one of my favorite people over here. Um, she's a lifetime retired missionary. And one cool thing about her is she's my mother-in-law. <laughs> so she, she is, a, and a really talented reader. So she's going to read Revelation 2, 18 to 28, the letter to Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I cast her on a, on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only Hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's some tough stuff in there and some pretty inspiring stuff too. What I'd like to do is I'd like to unpack this in seven beats or seven themes. Yes, seven. I couldn't help myself. Seven is such a prominent number in Revelation. We're gonna unpack this in kind of seven beats or seven themes that unfold this letter. Uh, the first is sun worship, sun worship, S-O-N worship. And so you, you just heard the description that opens the letter that Jesus is the God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Um, John pulls that image from the vision that he had of Jesus in the first chapter. And so you'll see each of these letters, one of the cool patterns in it that show its design is that the images at the beginning of each letter are, are pulled from the vision of the glorified risen Jesus that we explored in previous weeks in Revelation chapter 1. So the one that he picks to open this letter is this glorious image of the majesty of Jesus uh, who has eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. So we get this image of fire. What he adds to it is the title Son of God. 
That's kind of not something that was in Revelation chapter one per se, but he kind of pulls that title, uh, he kind of pulls the fiery image, he adds the title son of God, which is sort of a loaded image in the ancient world. The son of God. Um, I might put it this, this way, them's fighting words in the ancient world to call Jesus the son of God. In the Greco-Roman world, um, Zeus was the supreme God. And he was sort of the God that ruled over the pantheon of various so-called gods. And he had a son. His, his son was named Apollo. And Apollo was thought of to be the sun god, the god of blazing fire, a personification of the sun. And so do you see what John's doing here? Like right out of the gate in this letter, he's saying like, no, there's only one son who's a sun god. See, there's only one supreme ruler. It's not Zeus, it's Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And he has one true son, and it's not Apollo, it's Jesus, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. And he applies this kind of majesty, the splendor of the sun type imagery to Jesus in a way to say, not Apollo, Jesus is the true son of God. There's another way in which he kind of throws another God of the ancient world under the bus by calling Jesus son of God. Uh, one of the things Nathan hit uh, a number of different weeks is how one of the things going on at the time that Revelation was written was emperor worship. So it's almost hard to imagine in our context, but the emperor was thought of as an incarnate son of Zeus. The emperor was sort of seen as a son of Zeus and sort of the propaganda was worthy of worship. And so there were actually over 40 temples in the ancient world where people would worship the emperor as God. And he was seen as an incarnate son of the gods, particularly an incarnate son of Zeus. And so by, by calling Jesus the son of God, John is kind of opening this letter and right out of the gate he's saying, there is a true emperor, as he says in chapter one, a king of the rulers of the earth, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. Jesus is the true Lord, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ultimate emperor. So sun worship, sun worship is kind of what he hits right out of the gate. Secondly, steps forward. He talks about steps forward. So he goes on to voice Jesus' encouragement to the church in Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is very similar. This commendation is very similar to what Nathan shared with us last week. Um, Jesus gave a very similar encouragement to the church in Pergamum, which is the letter we looked at last week. The church in Pergamum, he said to them, I know where you live, where Satan has, its thr has his throne, Probably that reference to Satan's throne is what we just talked about. It's probably either this giant altar to Zeus that existed in Pergamum, where people went and worshiped Zeus, or um, worship at one of the temples where people worship the emperor. That's probably the reference to Satan's throne. It's this false worship that was happening in each of these seven cities. Yet Jesus says, you remain true to me. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So there are were, there were people literally losing their lives. They're losing their lives for confessing Jesus as Lord. And we get a very similar kind of 
encouragement from Jesus here in the letter to Thyatira. We, we um, sort of, the background to it is people are losing their lives. Jesus is saying to them, I know you've suffered greatly under threat of harm, under threat of opposition, under threat of even losing your lives. You have not denied Jesus as Lord. And not only that, but he says, you've continued to stay the course. You've continued to stay the course and take steps forward in growing in your service to me, your love for me, and your love and service for each other. And so we get this larger-than-life encouragement at the beginning of this letter. Some of you are doing 30 days of prayer. Uh, A number of you in here have mentioned to me, I'm doing 30 days of prayer, and, and have had almost like different comments about God doing something in your life through these 30 days of prayer for the persecuted church that we've been doing. This was week one that we just ended. Um, so one of the days this week, we prayed for Libya. There was a little, so each day, and by the way, it's not too late to participate in this. If you want to stop by the Welcome Center, you can grab a world watch list and a prayer schedule. But one of the days this week, we prayed for Libya. And um, there's a little article to read, and then there's some prayer prompts. And we're just asking the whole community, just read through those prayer prompts, and then one that grabs you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just highlighting one for you. Just pray for it. Spend a couple of minutes and just pray for it each day. Uh, two, two countries a day. And then we'll have prayed for the top 50 countries that are uh, the, the places where persecution is the most intense in the world right now, in 2022. So we prayed for Libya this week. The little article on Libya really touched me. It really moved me. Um, This is what the little article said. When a person in Libya leaves Islam to follow Christ, they face immense pressure from their families to renounce their faith. Their neighbors and the rest of the community ostracize them, and they can be left homeless, jobless, and alone. Targeted kidnappings and executions are always a possibility for believers. An Egyptian man was killed in Libya in 2021 simply because he followed Jesus. And yet his martyrdom has encouraged other believers. It is very painful for all of us, but the only thing that comforts us is that he didn't renounce the faith that he kept. He kept the faith until his last breath, says the martyr's uncle. He was martyred in the name of Jesus Christ. We are all proud of him and very happy for him. That's such a a kingdom perspective. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, "I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm so happy for you that you are pressing ahead and taking steps in not only not renouncing me, but sort of growing in your dependence on me, growing in your love for me, growing in your service to me and your love and service for each other. So based on Jesus' comments here in verse 19, it just strikes me that like right now, uh, that Egyptian man who was martyred is with Jesus. And like verses like these encouraging words from Jesus are, are the kinds of words that he's hearing right now. This martyr is with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, like, I'm so happy. I'm so proud of you. Like, you stayed the course. Like, you confessed me as Lord, even under threat of harm and oppression and even death. Number three, syncretism, syncretism. Next, the letter takes a turn in tone, okay? Like there's this glowing encouragement and then there's just some hard stuff now that we have to wade through. Uh, Jesus begins encouragement with encouragement, but he moves on to warning. 
Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food offered to idols. So he's not addressing the whole church here in these next couple of verses. He's addressing a faction in the church. There's a faction in the church who are following this woman that Jesus calls Jezebel, probably a nickname, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, She claims to teach the deep things of God, but really later he calls them the deep things of Satan. Um, What she's teaching is a gospel that actively leads followers of Jesus to worship idols and to violate God's context for sexual intimacy, which is marriage. Now, if we apply what we know about first century culture in Thyatira, um, here's probably what was going on. Um, This is, as people study, this is like the best picture of what's probably going on in this situation. Thyatira was a commercial center. Um, There's a bunch of archaeology that has uncovered coins from Thyatira and has revealed all kinds of different industries. Um, Industries like wool, linen, leather, bronze, potters, tanners, bakers, um, dyers. Um, Dyers was a big one. Uh, Purple cloth was a signature product of Thyatira. As a matter of fact, um, you might remember this. In Acts 16, Paul meets this lady Lydia by the river, and Luke actually says, and she was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. So it kind of affirms what archaeologists have discovered, that there's all of these industries, and their signature product was this purple cloth. Well, because of the number of trades, there were a bunch of trade guilds in the city. And there were more trade guilds in Asia Minor than any other city in the ancient world at the time. Um, Being part of the guild meant participating in the guild's regular feasts. So this was a required part of being part of these guilds. Being part of these guilds meant that your social and your business network was kind of secured by these guilds. And these guilds had regular gatherings. But there was a problem. The problem was at these regular gatherings, there was idol worship going on. There was food sacrificed to idols, and there were uh, sexual rituals uh, to temple prostitutes. So there was all kinds of, I mean, so not only were people prostrating themselves before false gods, but there was just all kinds of corrupt practice going on at these feasts. So this created a huge dilemma for followers of Jesus. How could they say Jesus is Lord in worship on Sunday and then on Monday go to the trade guild meeting and prostrate themselves before an idol? Um, How could they do this? How could they possibly remain part of these trade guilds? But to leave these trade guilds meant that they were basically losing their, their friends and they were losing their clients. Okay, so it made it exceedingly difficult for them to provide for themselves and to provide for their families. And so, really, there were a bunch of people probably looking for a way out. And now, here comes Jezebel. She's this self-proclaimed prophet, and she's got a new version of the gospel for you. She's kind of peddling this new version of the gospel where you can have your cake and eat it too. Jesus is Lord can exist right alongside Caesar is Lord, or Apollo is Lord. So here she is advocating for like, we can worship all of these gods. You know, Jesus is one among many of valuable gods here that we can worship. 
And you know what? It'll have no financial impact on you either. In a word, this so-called prophet was teaching syncretism. Syncretism. That's just a fancy word that means this. That uh, as human beings, each of us have a proclivity to take belief systems or worldviews that don't match up. They're in conflict with each other. And, and, and sort of like we kind of want to mix and match like a smorgasbord. And we want to kind of sync them up to our advantage, even though they don't really go together. Um, when I think of that, I think of this. Here's syncretism in a picture. Um, my girls are all teens and adults right now. And um, when my girls were little, uh, they'll tell you that one of my biggest frustrations was we'd be playing a CD in one room, and then they'd start like playing a song on the piano in the other room. And so you're sitting there, and you're like, I'm hearing these two songs. In one ear, I'm hearing like kind of this beautiful song, and then I'm hearing this other song that doesn't quite match up to that. It doesn't quite sync up. It's sort of like a different tones, different rhythms, different notes. And, and you're hearing these two songs that don't actually go together, and it's just noise. That's very much the heart of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, um, these two things don't match up. Um, what Jezebel is teaching is Jesus is Lord, and Apollo can be Lord. Uh, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar can be Lord. And Jesus says, no, these two songs don't harmonize. These things were created to be separate. So Jesus can be Lord, but Jesus and Apollo can't be Lord. Jesus can be Lord, but Jesus and Caesar can't be Lord. It's one or the other. So now that we understand that, I think we can see a little more easily, why does Jesus call her Jezebel? Now, it could be that's her actual name, maybe. Maybe her name was Jezebel. You know, maybe that was just like a popular name in the first century. Um, what he appears to be doing is comparing her to Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. And I think that's a key that unlocks a lot of understanding in this passage. I think what he's doing is he's comparing this self-proclaimed prophet to Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. How exactly does that work? Um, in the synagogue, as children, many of those who are um, reading this letter or hearing it read in their church would have heard the stories of King Jezebel from First King, First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. Um, queen Jezebel was queen over Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah. And what she was known for was Jezebel and her husband Ahab, who was the king, they advocated for the worship of Yahweh, the true God, alongside the worship of Baal and Asherah, the false gods of their, of their surrounding neighbors. And they also led others to do so. They led others to worship Baal, Asherah, alongside of Yahweh. And they thought these things were just fine. So here in Thyatira, we're seeing the same issue, this toxic syncretism that's infected the culture of the community just as it had infected ancient Israel. Since Jesus loves his church, since he uh, purposes to guard his church because it is his plan A to change the world, he's got to do something about this. And even so, we're going to see he's got to do something about this. Even so, we see that he does it gently. He begins with gentleness. He actually reminds the church that he's the God in the Old Testament who's slow to anger. So that's your fourth beat or theme, slow to anger. Look at Revelation 2.22, the first half of the verse. I've given her time to repent of her immorality. 
I've given her time to repent of her immorality. This reminds me of way back in Exodus when God revealed his personal name to Moses. He said to Moses, he said, my name is Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so the first thing that he does is he's saying, it's not my desire to drop the hammer. He said, like, I'm actually giving this warning because I want to have grace. Um, Turn to me. Repent. I want to show grace. And he's saying, like, I want to avoid dropping the hammer of judgment. And yet, he's been patient. He says he's been patient. He's provided space um, for Jezebel and her followers to turn back to him, to repent of these toxic words and deeds. And now Jesus has gotten to the point where he is going to allow a severe wake-up call. That's number five, severe wake-up call. Um, It helps me to think about the next verses in this way. Uh, Scripture talks about Jesus as a lamb and a lion. And sometimes we want to make him one or the other, but he's both. He's a lamb and a lion. So there's so many inspiring parts of Scripture where Jesus is so gentle with people. Uh, particularly people who know that they need him, particularly people who recognize their brokenness and have a soft heart to receive what he has to say and his influence in their lives. Um, This is one of those passages where he is dealing with hard hearts and he's a lion. He's a lion and he bears his claws and he's fiercely defending the church that he loves against these toxic words and deeds. Verses 22 and 23, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So he's allowing suffering here as a wake-up call. Um, even to the point of allowing death, allowing death to deal with the situation. Now, this is what I think is going on. Um, Particularly that line, like, I'll strike your children dead. You're like, gosh, Jesus, like, um, that seems hard. I I think this is what's going on here. Again, this helps me. I think this is what's going on here. I think that Jesus is continuing the comparison between this self-proclaimed prophet and Jezebel of the Old Testament. So again, the people that are hearing this letter, many of them were raised in synagogue where they heard all of these stories of Queen Jezebel and King Ahab and their family. And the fact is, just like Jesus says here, in the stories of Queen Jezebel, um, her and her household were allowed to suffer as a wake-up call uh, to turn to the true God and put away these idols. And that didn't work. Like, they didn't stop. So even after that, the way that God dealt with the situation is he actually allowed their untimely death, Jezebel and her children, to take them out of power because it was important for him uh, to deal with this toxic situation of idol worship in the culture of Israel. We actually see that in uh, 2 Kings 1, Jezebel's son, Ahaziah, fell through the lattice in the palace roof and he died. Um, I got to preach a message on that a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, actually. Um, Ahaziah falls through the palace roof and he dies. Um, 2 Kings 9, 
Jezebel's other son, Joram, who was in power, got assassinated. And then in that same passage, um, Jezebel gets thrown out of the second story of the palace, and she falls to her death. And then there's the part that junior high boys always like to uh, hear read, that she got eaten by wild dogs. Her, the, her body got eaten by wild dogs. So there's a nice little uh, freebie for you. Get eaten by wild dogs. Um, so Jesus is kind of continuing this comparison. And I think one of the ways he does that in verse 23 is he talks about her children being struck dead. And I think we say, Jesus, you're going to strike children dead? I think one of the things happening here is he's comparing her followers, her spiritual children, to Old Testament Jezebel's biological children. Same, same problem there. There's the same problem there. There was, an un, there was a hard, unrepentant spirit that could only be dealt with in this severe way. And so, um, so you have these people that are called her children, but the letter identifies them as the people who commit adultery with Jezebel. Jezebel and those who follow her ways and her practices. This is who Jesus seems to be speaking to, her followers. And even if it means allowing their death, he's going to fiercely uh, guard his church because he loves them. So Jesus spends four verses addressing this whole situation. And then in the closing verses of the letters, of the letter, exhale for a minute, he goes back to encouragement. He kind of returns to encouraging the body as a whole. So he kind of goes back to this idea of, look, this is a faction. It's not okay. But he goes back to saying, like, look, like, community as a whole, there's all kinds of good stuff happening here. And he exhorts them to stay the course, to stay the course. Verses 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, earlier in the letter, we, we read that he commended them. He commended them for even in the face of opposition, harm, um, potential death, that they were not denouncing him as Lord. They were holding on to Jesus as Lord. And in the midst of these extremely difficult circumstances, they were even growing. They were even taking steps ahead in their love for him, their service to him, and their love and service for each other. And he simply says here, continue on this path. Stay the course. Continue to take these steps. That's what I'm asking of you. And then he gives a why. He gives a why. Continue to take these steps because the trajectory is something awesome. The trajectory in verses 26 to 28. And this is number seven. The trajectory is shared authority. Shared authority. Verses 26 to 28. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what he does there is he quotes Psalm 2, which is basically this psalm where like the son or Jesus is coronated as king over the nations. And the early church looked back at the psalm and they said, oh, it's about Jesus. It's so clearly about Jesus. And they saw it as about Jesus' return. When Jesus would return, which we're still looking forward to, 
and he would fully express his kingship on earth, and he would actually restore this creation. So there'll be a new creation that's fully under his rule where his kingship is fully expressed. And so these were things that the Old Testament was looking forward to, and it kind of quotes that here. Now, here's a little surprise. Here's a mind-blowing wild card. He says this. When Jesus returns and rules as the king of the new creation, he'll share his authority with his people. He'll share his authority with you and with me, people whose faith are in him. Those of us who our faith is in him and like our faith is shown to be genuine by us overcoming, we're gonna be his co-rulers. Like the Garden of Eden, like we will again care for and steward his creation with him. Um, Like the Garden of Eden, he'll be visibly with us. His presence will be with us. We'll see him. We'll we'll be fully, he'll fully express his presence with us. And we'll be eternally with him, serving at his side as his co-regents. Verse 28 promises that Jesus will give his people the morning star. Now, earlier I had said that one of the things every letter does is it pulls something from the chapter one vision of the risen glorified Jesus. Another thing the letters always do, which kind of shows their intricate design, is it always ends by pulling a picture from the last couple of chapters of Revelation. And so the image that he pulls from the last couple of chapters of Revelation, actually the very last chapter of Revelation, is this this image of the morning star. He says, look, to my people, those whose faith is in me, the overcomers, this is what This is the trajectory I have planned for you. You'll get the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? Revelation 22 identifies it as Jesus himself. I'll read Revelation 22, 16 for you. Jesus says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus says, my trajectory for my people, my reward for my people is you get me. You get me, you get an eternity with me, and you get an eternity of service to me. Now, on a daily basis, that trajectory gets clouded. For you and I, we get so distracted and called to other lords, uh, things like power and comfort and money and image and pleasure. They're sort of calling us to submit to them, to prostrate ourselves before these things as Lord. And this letter reminds us that Jesus is filled with joy when we get intentional about continuing to take steps towards Jesus as Lord. And we continue to take steps toward increasingly creating the culture in his church that Jesus is Lord. And this letter also reveals just the the fierce lion saying, I am passionate. I'm so passionate about this value of lifestyles that increasingly move toward Jesus as Lord that I'm also also just going to show my fire about this. I'm going to bear my claws and say, like, I love my church and this is what I want it to be. There's a picture, a couple of pictures that kind of sum this up for me in a really helpful way. Um, I was sitting at my dining room table and I said like, man, how does this, 
has this kind of like maybe gets summed up in, in sort of something you can grab onto and take with you. And I thought of this. We live our lives as if life is a set of railroad tracks. We live our lives as if life is a set of railroad tracks. And what I mean by that is this. Um, there, are, there are these tracks, and sort of like one rail is our confession of Jesus as Lord. And we sort of think we can ride both rails of Jesus as Lord, and then like a bunch of other stuff is Lord in our lives. And like if I said to you, like, is Jesus your Lord? If you said to me, is Jesus my Lord? Like we would all say like, yes, he is. There may be some in this room who haven't made that decision yet. Those who have would say, absolutely. Like I have embraced Jesus as my Savior and Lord. But we have these moments where, where we realize there are these other things that we're grappling with. And in our most honest moments, we say, oh, wow, that still has lordship in my life. You know, things like power, you know, power is Lord. Things like comfort is Lord. Things like money is Lord. Or maybe image is Lord. Or pleasure is Lord. And if I said to you, is money Lord? Is pleasure Lord? Is image Lord? You would say, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. But then we have these little moments where we realize, like, wow, like we really struggle with these things being Lord. Um, we, 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 may have, we may think back on the week and say, boy, you know, in that interaction with someone, I, I really was more about manipulation and control of that person than I was about serving them. But remember, Jesus said, um, Jesus washed people's feet. And he said, leadership is servanthood. And so we realize, like, wow. You know, power is more Lord in my life than Jesus is. Um, maybe we think back on a week, and we think back on, let's say, this past week. Maybe we were, like, sitting and um, waiting for our kids at a, um, an event, or maybe we were just, like, in the grocery store, just, like, in line, and there was just a moment to maybe share our faith story or a piece of our faith story, and we kind of wimped out. We kind of, like, changed the subject instead of just sharing about how God has um, changed us and had a life, faith in him has been life-giving for us. But, but Jesus, you know, he said, like, you are my witnesses. You're my life-giving presence and my voice in this world. And so we realize, like, oh, wow, you know what? Like, comfort is maybe more my Lord than I think it is. Um, maybe there was a moment where you think back and you say, gosh, I really devalued that person or maybe even told a white lie to get some money or to save some money. And at that moment, you say, wow, you know, um, Jesus said that, that nobody can serve two masters. You have to choose between God and money. Uh, money is either a way to serve God or, or it functions as God. And so you might say to yourself, gosh, if I'm honest, you know, money is more my Lord than I think it is. And then um, image. You know, maybe this week um, you think back on the week and you say, gosh, I spent an awful lot of time this week um, presenting myself as having it all together. Um, like, I'm not one of those broken people that needs God's grace. You know, Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to save righteous people. I came to save sinners. Like, I came for broken people. 
You know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick people. Like, if you don't have anything that you need saving from, then you don't need me. And we might say, oh, gosh. You know, image is more my Lord than I, than I think it is. And then, uh, lastly, pleasure. Um, maybe there was a moment this last week where you said to yourself, boy, you know, um, it was really stressful this past week. And in the stress, I realized that my go-to to relieve my stress was actually more food or my phone or like a feel-good substance than it was the Lord. Like, but what Jesus said was, you know, come to me, all who are weak with heavy burdens. I will give you rest. And we say, wow, pleasure is more my Lord than I think it is. And so we can't ride these two rails. Like we were actually designed, you know, many people say with a God-shaped hole that is filled by Jesus is Lord. And so this is more the vision that God has for our life. Um, Our life is less like a um, railroad tracks and it's more like a walking path. It's more like a walking path. So um, we embrace Jesus as our savior. We begin a relationship with Jesus through faith in him. And then we, we grow in our faith in him. So there were kind of all of these things that we just talked about, like comfort, money, power, image, pleasure. There are all of these things kind of calling for us to, to have lordship in our lives. But we decide to take steps. We take steps toward this path that narrows. And throughout the course of our life, it gets more and more and more singular. And as we take these intentional steps, we're shaped by the Holy Spirit, we're spurred on by the Holy Spirit, and we begin to become people who don't worship these things as Lord, but these things become an avenue along the path to glorify Jesus as Lord. They become an avenue to worship Jesus as Lord. They become an avenue to express not just with our mouth, but with our lives that Jesus is Lord. And here's what strikes me. When we live as if these things are the ultimate reward, like we are practicing saying with our lives, then that's what the ultimate reward is. But when we actually increasingly live as if Jesus really is the Lord, we're saying with our lives, like that's the trajectory. That's where it's all going. And that's the same thing that Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, If the trajectory truly is to continue to grow day after day in Jesus being the Lord, then he's saying, when you get there and the reward is Jesus himself, it'll be the most natural thing in the world. It'll be the most natural thing to get there and just be like, "Ah, of course that's the end of the journey. My whole life has been about growing and giving my life to Jesus and living as if he's the Lord. And now here I am, an eternity of love for Jesus and service to him. Of course that's the reward. It'll be the most natural thing in the world. So Jesus says, that's the trajectory for you, church in Thyatira. That's the trajectory for us. Stay the course. Continue walking in it. Uh, May our lives in the here and now, not just through words, but through how we live our lives, may it just continue more and more and more to reflect Jesus is Lord. May our life be less and less about us. May it be more and more about Jesus. 
Let's reflect on that to close the service. I'd just like to invite you to stand, and Sam is going to lead us in a song just to kind of apply that to our hearts.
May we see the things this week that are competing for lordship in our lives. And God, just give us the insight and the power to take steps toward you as Lord. Lord, to acknowledge just the weight of who you are. And God, all of reality and all of eternity has been designed to worship you. God, may our lives reflect that. And God, just show us the baby steps to begin to take for our lives to move in the direction of reflecting that. And God, um, that, that the day that we put our head on the pillow and die, God, that we will know that your spirit has sort of led us naturally to the trajectory of give me Jesus. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. so good to worship together. God bless you. See you again soon.